Good morning. I would like to pray before I begin, please. Heavenly Father, I come before your throne with the confidence that you, that you hear me because of Christ, because of him. I dare to come to your throne and, and ask and plead for your help. I need the Holy Spirit to, to help me this morning so I can preach through the power of the Holy Spirit and not of my own or me. If Jesus, your beloved son, he preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, he, he preached through the Holy Spirit even though he's holy and sinless, how much more I need the help of the Holy Spirit because I'm not sinless. I need your help. I ask you that this morning it will be of a blessing to those who hear me, but above all that, that you, God, will be pleased with what is being done here at Colonial Bible Church every Sunday morning. I pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. There was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God, and turn away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yokes of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. I am preaching from the book of Colossians this morning. Uh, but the reason I read Job chapter 1 and the first three verses is because I want to use it as an introduction to what we're going to see this morning. This morning we're going to see what the Apostle Paul is doing on Colossians chapter 2 verses 4 through 8. So Job 1, verses 1 through 3, we are very familiar, I will assume, that we are familiar with the study of Job. Even our children, even non-Christians, non-believers, they probably heard the story of Job. And the first three verses of the description of the life of Job just gives you the introduction, and it shows how everything is calm, how everything is stable, firm. He's, he's okay. All, he is the greatest of all the people of the East. But I want you to imagine for one minute that you have the opportunity to talk or to write to Job. You know what's going to happen to him. You know the type of pain and suffering he's about to go through. You know that 
he's going to be test to amazing limits. You know the entire story. And just imagine for a second that you had the opportunity to write to him, to give him encouragement or warnings of what is about to happen to him. What would you write to him? What words of warning or encouraging would you give to him? It's very difficult, right? Very difficult just to begin to think, what would I say to a man who's going to go through so much suffering? I know, he's, I know that's coming to him. What would I say to him? See, the first three verses that I read from Job just give us the calm before the storm. Everything is good, but we know the story. It doesn't stay like that. Job suffers greatly. He goes through a destructive F5 tornado. He goes through suffering like a few. So imagine you can write to him. What would you say to him before the storm? Well, Colossians chapter 2, verses 4, 8. We have the Apostle Paul experiencing something similar. He's writing to the Colossians. He knows that the Colossians are currently enjoying a calm life, an orderly, firm, and stable life. But all this is about to change. But they just don't know it yet. But they are about to experience their own tornado on their lives. So, the Apostle Paul writes, Colossians chapter 2, verse 4 through 8. I say this so that no one will deceive you with persuasive arguments. For even though I'm absent in body, I'm nevertheless with you in spirit. Rejoicing to see you orderly manner and stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that there is no one who takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceptions in accordance with human tradition in accordance with the elementary principles of the war, rather than in accordance with Christ. So the Apostle Paul writes this to the Colossians in an effort to warn them, in an effort to uh, motivate them, to give them uh, hope, because he knows that there's going to be, or they are already under attack. Someone wants to deceive them. Someone wants to take them captive. So the Apostle Paul tells the Colossians, someone wants to deceive you. What does it mean to be deceived? It means to lie, to pretend, to cheat, to defraud. Probably most of you, or maybe everyone here has experienced that. That you've been cheated, that you've been lied to, that you've been defraud. And it's very painful. It's not physical damage. But it hurts. It hurts. It really hurts. So the Apostle Paul is writing to them and saying, Someone wants to deceive you. Someone wants to hurt you. Someone wants you to believe something that is not true. 
and typically they do that to gain some personal advantage. So wasn't it simple of a deceiver? We can find a example of a deceiver in Genesis chapter 27. Please turn your Bible there. Genesis chapter 27. And we find Jacob. Jacob, the deceiver. And we know what happens with Jacob. He's not the firstborn son, but he wants the heritage. He is not the firstborn son, but he wants what Esau will inherit. So he deceives his father. He lies. He pretends to be Esau. If you read the entire chapter of Genesis 27, you see how crafty and how uh, with details they lie to Jake, to, to uh, Isaac. And, and Jacob and his mother deceive Isaac. How do they do it? They do it with, with persuasive arguments. Same thing that the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 4, uh, chapter 2, verse 4. They would deceive you with persuasive arguments. So if you look there in Genesis chapter 27, verse 8, we see the, the persuasive arguments that Jacob uses. Verses, verse 8, Then he came to his father and said, Father, and he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, you firstborn. He's lying. He's pretending. I have done as you told me. Come now, sit and eat of my game, so that you may bless me. Isaac said to his son, How is that you have it so quickly, my son? Isaac kind of smells something wrong. He's like, what's, Something is not right. And here is the persuasive argument from Jacob. And he said, Because the Lord, your God, made it come to me. You see, he used God in his own scheme. He used God as, as a weapon to deceive his father. And we see that all over, everywhere. People deceiving with the faith. People lying with the faith. Using the name of the Lord in vain for their own gain. And they, they don't do it openly. They use persuasive arguments. They use the name of God and make you think like they're serving God. Here Jacob says, because the Lord, your God, made it come to me. If we keep reading chapter 27, we, we see the story. Isaac believes and he's deceived. So the Apostle Paul says, make sure no one deceives you. In verse 5, he says, For even though I'm absent in, in body, I'm nevertheless with you in spirit. This phrase, you probably used it before. We always use it. When do we use this phrase? When we wish or desire to be at one place, but we cannot go there. That's how we usually use it. We say, well, I'm not going to be there in body, but I'm there in spirit. But the way the Apostle Paul is using this phrase is on a way that he really wants to be there. He really wants to be there and teach them himself. 
He really wants to teach the Colossians in person to teach them about this deceiver, to teach them and show them don't fall for these deceives, for these lies. But he says, I cannot be there. And if you remember, going through the book of Colossians, we learn that the apostle Paul is where? In prison. He really cannot go. He really is unable to go because he's in prison. Even though he wants to warn them and teach them in person. But he says, I'm there with you in spirit. Now, the word spirit here is not a reference to the Holy Spirit. But it is a reference to the unity of all believers. The bond that we have in Christ as brothers and sisters in Christ. The Apostle Paul used this word, this type of language also in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. But we, brothers and sisters, having been orphaned from you by absent for a short while, in person, not in spirit, we are all the more eager with great desire to see your face. So he used that language in, in Thessalonians 2, where he says, we're not in person, but we're in spirit. We're all together. We desire to be with you. So when he used that phrase that I'm not in present in body, but I'm in spirit, he's referring to the unity of the body of Christ. That even though we're not there, but we feel, we desire, we have that bond with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Second, the Apostle Paul tells that even though he's not there present, but he rejoices with them. He rejoices with them. How does he rejoice? Why? Why does he rejoice? Because he sees them that they live in an orderly manner and they have a stable faith in Christ. So the, the Colossians, they live in an orderly manner. They're stable in their faith in Christ. And the Apostle Paul rejoices in that. Rejoices that they have fruits of a true believer, a true Christian. But remember, this is before the storm. Just like we read in Job that everything is fine. The first three verses, everything is good. There's no problem. And then you continue reading Job and you find out what happens to him. Here the Apostle Paul is doing the same for the Colossians. So far, Colossians, you are okay. You, you're living an orderly life. You're living in a stable life. But verse 6 says, Therefore, as you have received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted, and now being built up in Him, and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. So verses 6 and 7, now he's giving them a base. He's giving them motivation of what they need to do, what they need to remember before the storm comes. So in verses 6 and through verses 7, we find four words in the past tense. So the Apostle Paul wants them to remember something that already happened in their life. Something that is already a fact. It's already done. It happened. So he says, you have received past tense. You received Christ, Jesus, the Lord. That already happened. Also, in verse 7, he says, you've been firmly rooted. 
You've been rooted. You've already been planted. You're already rooted in Christ. He also says you've been established. You've already been confirmed in Christ. And at the end of verse 7, he says, and you've been instructed. You already heard the gospel. See, they're, they're not new to the gospel. They heard the gospel. So the, before the storm comes to the Colossians, the apostle Paul do one thing. He reminds them. He reminds them that they receive the Lord already. We know that receiving the Lord, the only way you can receive the Lord is because he receives you first. We know we're able to receive the Lord is because he gives us uh, the new life that gives us new eyes and new ears to hear and see. So they receive the Lord. They have received the Lord. It's in past tense. They have been rooted into Christ. They have been made one with Christ. Our union with Christ is done by Him. He is the one doing the planting. He is the one that give us, put, put us in those roots. It's not us. The reason you, you stay firm is not because you're holding, you know, you're holding really strong to the root. It's because the root is holding you. And you've been rooted to Christ. Our union with Christ cannot be broken. Also, the Apostle Paul says, you, you have been established. It's official. You're officially made, made one with Christ. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's, you've been established. You have a new life now. Your life is no longer yours. Now you're, you're crucified. You're, you're together, united with him. The Apostle Paul also used the word instructed. He says to the Colossians, you've been instructed. You already heard the good news. You already have a knowledge of the gospel. He says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 5 through 7, Because of the hope reserved for you in heaven, of which you probably heard in the word of truth, the gospel. They heard, previously heard the good news. And also says that they heard it and understood the grace of God, and they learned it through Epaphras. So they've been instructed. This is not new for them. The gospel, the good news... Is they already have a knowledge about the good news and the gospel. So before the storm comes, the apostle Paul tells them, You receive Christ, you've been rooted into Christ, you've been established, and you've been instructed in the gospel. So first he reminds them of their past. But now the apostle gives them also three words. Concerning the present. Because that's the past. Because that already happened. Now you have to walk in him. We already know the past. We already know what already happened. Now a new Christian. And now a new uh, believer. A new creature will walk in him. See receiving Christ is not a one time. I did that. I receive Christ, and you forget about it. No. Receiving Christ means that you walk in Him. You continue 
to walk in a manner worthy of him. Receiving Christ is not a once and thing, but it's a continue walk, continue walk with the Lord. So he says, walk in him. So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. That's how we should live. Do everything for the glory of him. Then the second word concerning the present, the Apostle Paul says, being built up in him. The Apostle Paul says that we must be built up in him. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Do not be comforted to this word, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and present. See, we believe in a sovereign God that he controls everything. But that knowledge of his sovereign, that, that he's sovereign is not an excuse for you to not be actively building up in him. You must renew your mind. You must be transformed and continue to grow. You, you are, have to actively do. You cannot just say, oh, God is sovereign. He will take care of it. He, he, he will sanctify me. He will make me grow. No. You had to be building up in him, increasing in knowledge, increasing, renewing your mind. The third thing that the Apostle Paul says is overflowing with gratitude. Overflowing with gratitude. See, what, what motivates a true Christian? What motivates a true Christian to a good life, a good moral life? What motivates a true Christian, a true believer, to, to desire holiness? What is the motivation of a true Christian to obey the Lord, to be right with all men? Is it the law? Is that the motivation to a true Christian? Is it the fear to punishment? Is it the, the desire for your own glory? Absolutely not. The true motivation to a true Christian is gratitude. If you understand, the more you understand, the more you can grasp your mind in what the Lord did for you. The more you understand the gospel. See, the gospel is not three points and then you have the gospel. No, you, the gospel you have to go deep, deep and see how he saved sinners. How he died for sinners. The more your mind can grasp that and, and, and put it in your heart and your mind, the more grateful you will be. And the more grateful, the more thankful that you are of what the Lord has done for you, that will give you the motivation. That's the motivation behind every, every true Christian. We're, we're on... We're not motivated for the rewards. We're not motivated for the punishment. We're motivated because we are thankful. He died for you. He died for me. It's, we, we're overflowing with gratitude. Verse 8. See to it that there is no one who takes you captive. Here we begin to see more of that storm. More of that Strong winds coming. See to it that there's no one who takes you captive. 
So far, the Apostle Paul says, there's someone who wants to deceive you, who wants to lie to you. Here in verse 8, he says, see it that there's no one who takes you captive. The first word, see to it, is a command. You're, you, again, had to be actively engaged in a battle of, I'm not going to be captive. So, what it means to be captive? To be captive means that you're uh, in prison, that you are put in chains, that you've been captured. And the Apostle Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive. Through philosophy and empty deceptions, according to human traditions, according with the elementary principles of the world. So you cannot be passive. You cannot just stay still and say, I'm okay, I'm okay, the Lord will protect me. Yes, but at the same time, you must see to it that you don't fall, that you don't get yourself captive. A good example in the Bible of this, uh, of this attitude of someone or a group of people who did not stay alert, we find it in Mark, Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, verse 37. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying so that you would not come into temptation. Then in verse 41, and he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? See, Simon and the disciples, in the darkest hour, they're sleeping. They're not alert. And the Lord says, Are you still asleep? You should be watching and praying. See, the Lord is praying for Simon. The Lord is watching Simon. But the Lord says, You should be praying and watching you should be alert too, so you not come into temptation. See, we do believe in the sovereignty of God, but we also believe in the responsibility of men. You must also be watchful. You also must be actively engaged. So why? Why is the urgency to stay alert? Why? The apostle says, because someone wants to. Take you captive. Someone wants to take you captive. Wasn't it simple? Where can we find an example in the Bible of someone being taken captive? I found one of many. Samson. 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 Sorry, I don't know how to pronounce it. In Spanish, we say Samson. <laughs> Samson. He was. Physically strong, but still was taken captive. Really strong, but he fall. He was taken captive. Judges chapter 16, verses 20 through 21. And she said, the Philistines are up on you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep, another sleeping person here, and said, I will go out as others times and shake myself free. 
but he did not know that the Lord had left him, and the Philistines seized him, seized him, and got out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza, and bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in the prison. They put him in chains. They cut, take him captive. And the Apostle Paul in Colossians says, there's someone who wants to do the same to you. Someone who wants to take you captive. So it is a big deal. You must be alert. You must be on guard. You actively need to be awake. We see Simon and Samson sleeping. But you must be awake, alert. How are they how is this person that the, uh, the Apostle Paul is warning the Colossians, how is, what, what tools, what methods that this person used to take you captive? Through philosophy, empty deceptions, human traditions, elementary principles of the war. Be careful, brothers and sisters. There's the list. Philosophy, empty deceptions, human traditions, elementary principles of the war. But the Apostle Paul says to the Colossians that the way to escape from this person, from this deceived, from this person who's trying to take them captive, the answer is Jesus. They're, they're trying to take you captive for you to live through philosophy, through empty deceptions, through human traditions. But the Apostle Paul says at the end, rather than in accordance with Christ. How do you escape? How do you survive this storm coming? These strong winds coming? You survive, and the answer is through Christ. Through Christ. See, the apostle is warning them. There's an attack. There's an assault coming your way. Someone wants to deceive you. Someone wants to take you captive. And they want to show you how to live. But the answer is, you must live according, according with Christ. That's the answer, brothers and sisters. That's the solution. The solution is Christ. Christ is the solution. You must live your life according to Christ. See, it doesn't matter how, long, how, how strong the winds are. The Apostle Paul, you must remember you have been rooted in Christ. See, yesterday around 5, 6 o'clock, I was digging small bushes, maybe this tall, getting them out of the root, and it was painful getting those things out. Painful, painful, painful. And they have an irrigation system. You know, you're hitting it, boom, the pipe, the water comes out. It was so hard to get that little bush out. I was so angry. I was like, how can you be so small? See, something that small, that simple, is so rooted and firm and there. The Apostle Paul says, you've been rooted in Christ. You are firm in, the, in him. So thinking about that, thinking about winds and how strong and difficult it was to get that root out, I print out a paper that, that gives me a description of and and classifications of tornadoes. So tornadoes, F zero, which I guess is the lowest uh, type of tornado, 
65 to 85 miles per hour. The expected damage is minor damage, shingles, gutters, tree branches. F1, wind speed 86 miles through 110 miles per hour, moderate, moderate damage, roof, broken windows, stereo doors, overturned mobile homes. Wow, I'm like, that's modern damage? Overturned mobile homes? F2, 111 through 135 miles per hour, considerable damage, roofs turned off, mobile homes destroyed, trees uprooted, cars toasted. Wow, F3, 136 miles through 160 miles per hour, severe damage, homes destroyed, buildings damaged, homes with weak foundations can be blown away. Wow. F4, 166 miles per hour to 200 miles per hour. Extreme damage, homes level, homes leveled, cars thrown, top story, stereos walls, or masonry buildings li likely to collapse, likely to collapse. <laughs> F5, over 200 miles per hour, massive damage, homes swept away, there's no more likely, there will be so swept away. High-rise buildings severely damaged, steel-reinforced concrete structure damaged, trees snapped out of roots. Why did I read all this? Because, brothers and sisters, I don't know. I don't know what kind of tornado you're going through. If it's an F1, if it's an F5. I, I don't know what kind of tornado is coming your way and you just don't know it yet. But... What I want you to know is that it don't matter if it's F0, F5, if you are rooted in Christ, you will not be moved. You will be firm. You, you will survive. You will be in the rock. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 through 27. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts of them will be like a wise man who built his house. On the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against the house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been found on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not add on them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against the house and fell. And it collapsed, and its collapse was great. See, what I just read is a description of life. The winds blow, the flood comes, the rain fell. Those are trouble. Those are suffering. And guess what? They come to both. To the wise and to the foolish. But the difference is that if you build in the sand, your destruction is secure. If you build in the sand, you are a fool. And you will be, your collapse will be great. But if you build in the rock, if you're rooted in Christ, if you've been rooted in Christ, the winds can blow, the, the, the storm can come, the tornado of F5 can come, and... 
you will stand. You'll be firm. Not because you're strong, but because the rock is strong. Because he is stronger than any other. He's stronger than any tornado, than any wind. So the conclusion is simple. There's only two points. Point number one, the winds are coming. And if you're not in Christ, you will fail. You will have no refuge. You will be destroyed. I'm not going to paint it beautiful for you. If you're not in Christ, you will not stand. You will be destroyed. Point number two. If you're in Christ, you will not fall. If you're in Christ, do not be afraid. You all hear dress nicely and beautiful. You look nice. But in your house, in your life, I really don't know what's going on. It may be ugly. It may be terrible, but you must know that if you are in Christ, you should not fear. Do not fear. You are in Christ. You are rooted in Him, and He will sustain you. He will keep you standing. Psalm chapter 91, verse 1 and 2. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we live in a falling falling war, full of suffering, full of disappointments, full of pain. We're under the sun here where it's not pretty. There's, there's always trouble. But because of who you are, but because of your son, Jesus Christ, your beloved son who you send to save sinners and all who are rooted in him, we can have hope. We can have hope that even if those strong winds come. Even if we see partial damage, we can have trust in you, that you are our refuge, that you are a stronghold, that you are our rock, and we are firm because of you. I ask you, Lord, that you bless the preaching of your word. It's in his precious name, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.